if we're to build something that's long-term, that's reciprocal, that's beneficial, but also works from an anti-racist point of view, you know, what are the power dynamics in, in partnering up together? How can we look at, for example, like you said, how did these books end up in Edinburgh University? The Sudanese revolution in its early stages. And I wrote this piece on the anniversary of the, well, it's called Bagbalek Hassan. It was the massacre that happened the night before Eid. I feel like a lot of Sudanese artists, especially in diaspora, took part in this as well. We never really agreed to anything like beforehand. It was just on that day, I've seen a lot of people releasing things as well. I'd wrote it a few days before, but it was kind of nice seeing how everyone felt the same as I did. Please note that language used in this episode may be offensive to some. Welcome listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. Undersong represents a commitment to amplifying a space for listening to what too easily gets buried, erased, or forgotten. In listening to the uncomfortable legacies of empire and coloniality that shape the present, this podcast serves as a local and global platform to exchange critical thought around race and the making of worlds otherwise. This podcast emerges out of Race Ed, a cross-university network concerned with race, racialization, and decolonial studies from a multidisciplinary perspective. Uh, welcome, listeners. My name is Dr. Shira Vedasaria, and it is an honor to be here in conversation with two of our guests from the Sudanese community in Edinburgh. Welcome, Zaki Al-Salehi and Ahmed Musa. It's a, a pleasure to have you. Thank you for making time for us. So I think part of maybe the conversation that we wanted to have today is both about um, what kind of work, what kind of partnership has been formed around the Sudanese community in Edinburgh and um, specifically the University of Edinburgh. Um, and maybe, maybe before we jump into that, if you could tell listeners a little bit more about who you are, um, maybe you can introduce yourself and what role you play within the Sudanese community in Edinburgh. Definitely. I'll jump in first. So my name is Zaki Al-Salehi. Uh, I'm a member of the Sudanese community in Edinburgh. Um, uh, Edinburgh is my home where I raise my family. I'm British Sudanese. My dad's from Sudan. Uh, Abbasia in Omdurman. If you know it, that's a shout out. I've been the lead youth work volunteer within the Sudanese community of Edinburgh uh, for organization, the charity, Sudanese community in Edinburgh has been running for almost 30 years now in Edinburgh. Uh, it's a, a civic, educational, welfare and cultural support charity for any Sudanese nationals in Edinburgh and the Lothians. It's run entirely by volunteers who are Sudanese nationals and there is no employed staff whatsoever. Um, they're democratically elected every year by an AGM of our peers. And I've been privileged to be part of that. That's how originally me and Ahmed met. Um, so that's me in a nutshell. I just add that uh, I'm a, by trade, I'm a community worker and a, and a performance poet. I have very selective performances, but performance poet as well. So I've got some lyrical interludes later on. Yeah, Ahmed, Fadda. Um, I am Ahmed Musa, um, or Ahmed, I guess. <laughs> I'm a member of the Sudanese community in Edinburgh, both as just like a member of the community growing up here. Um, I was born in Sudan, but grew up most of my life here. Moved here when I was like three. And yeah, after like getting older, I wanted to kind of like, I guess, give back to the community. 
and take part. Uh, my role is more of a advisory kind of role around different projects. I'm a student right now, I'm studying biotech, but um, passion is more lyricism, um, specifically music, but I do poetry as well. Thanks, Ahmed and Zaki. Could you tell listeners a little more about how did you come into this collective? Um, what does it mean to kind of have um, to have a dedicated community space inside of Edinburgh? How you know? What, how does it nurture, or what are the challenges? It's a really good question. So you're asking about the Sudanese community in Edinburgh? Yeah, exactly. Because um, you, you said it's thirty years old now. That's right. Yeah, just coming up to thirty years. Yeah, set up and established and registered as a charity in 1994, originally across Glasgow and Edinburgh, and then as the community grew and grew and grew, and um, quite rapidly from about kind of 2000, the we realised there was a need for an Edinburgh organisation and a Glasgow organisation, and then there's smaller fledgling similar organisations in Aberdeen and Dundee, and um, so the four kind of industrial hubs of of Edin of Scotland you'll find Sudanese everywhere. <laughs> For me, I moved here 2008 um, as a student. Um, I'm British Sudanese and I'm raising my two daughters here in this city. They call it home. They identify even as Scottish before anything else. And um, within the first two weeks of arriving here, I discovered the Sudanese community and just uh, it's somewhere that welcomes with open arms straight away. It's somewhere that's always family oriented. So any gatherings or events, you can always bring your children there. Um, it's not something you go just the adults. It's something very much men, women, children, you gather together regularly. So the, the charity really provides a social space and um, that was really important. But also for me, being British Sudanese, it provides a really important cultural space where I can introduce my children who might be a little bit more distanced from Sudanese culture. It's, it's somewhere we can find a bit more of ourselves reflected and meet, meet friends, meet other people. For me, practice Arabic, because that's really important. And I'm Murphy Arabi, <laughs> so I have to work on that. And that's what another part of what the organization does. Um, but most importantly, it's just connectedness with other Sudanese nationals who are here. Um, Ahmed, what about you? Uh, I think I agree with that, because like looking at it from my perspective, kind of like growing up in the Sudanese community and events and stuff, um, I went to like a school that was majority white. So um, the Sudanese community kind of gave me a space where like I felt more comfortable. Um, and like most of like my peers in the community around my age all kind of got to know each other through the community. It's kind of grew a bit bigger now and it's kind of like a bit more separated in terms of just, you know, as, as things grow, there's kind of like more like cliques. But back then it was um, 2003, the community was a lot smaller. So everyone just kind of knew everyone. The, the family setting definitely is an important part of it for me. And like you said, just kind of like a cultural hub. And for other people, like I was lucky enough to be born in Sudan and move here early. So I kind of got the best of both worlds, I guess. But um, for some people that never really got that and were like born and raised here it, it kind of taught them a lot about the culture a lot of the events were kind of educational as well kind of like teaching about traditions and stuff even to this day i'm still friends with most of the people i grew up around in that kind of community but what i'd add is in sudanese arabic i don't know if it's general arabic the organization is known as the jalia 
and that just means the diaspora organization. So Sudanese are particularly highly organized when it comes to, not necessarily in terms of time and promptness, Definitely not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when it comes to political and educational organization, there are jalias in every country of the world. It just takes like three, sometimes two people to begin something like so many diaspora communities, um, but, but pretty much anywhere I've lived in London, Oxford, Doha, uh, and, and back to Edinburgh, there's always been a, a jalia, a community organization. Um, my dad used to be head of the community in, in Doha uh, and sometimes in London as well. So I kind of, as a kid, I grew up with the jalias meeting sometimes in our house. Um, and that'd be probably the only time I'd see a lot of Sudanese people gathered together in Britain. It, it's something that they all have in common. Like They only really differ in like what events they carry out and stuff. But in terms of like the family and, and that kind of like community aspect, I feel like that's the same because like I have friends um, even like when I'm in Sudan, I meet friends from all over. It, it's kind of like uh, like the easiest meeting place for us. Like I have friends in America, for instance. It was kind of surprising seeing how similar like the kind of Jadia organization is. The overall kind of like mission of it is the same. Yeah, it's almost, you're almost describing it as a kind of, um, like I know we're talking about it as a, as a cultural site, as a cultural hub, but the its um persistence or pervasiveness almost also also cues to a kind of political survival which i know for many colonized societies um claims to culture the capacity to be in community and to kind of inhabit homeland in the diaspora is very much a political act even even if it's not the primary reason why people assemble right it it's still you know it is a it is a political gesture of some kind or it has political effects so it sounds like a really beautiful way totally it's like in kind of any study of black britain you always come across the indian workers association the iwa was like instrumental in so many cities across the uk early like uh, early 1900s um, so a lot of like the south asian continent people organized through the iwa across britain it's kind of like the the arabic language kind of version of that there's jalia in britain for a long time and um and most people won't really know much about it because there's not any studies or not any kind of public knowledge so really it's only sudanese people know about it but it is kind of like it's really interesting that intersection of cultural hub and political survival mm-hmm. um most definitely that that you're speaking my language Mm-hmm. Well, I think also the um, the kind of more recent projects that have been taken up um, by the Sudanese community in Edinburgh, and and this now we now we get to this question of um, of the archive project. Um, it seems like there's been um, some deliberate. I don't know if there's shifts within the community um, to take on different kinds of of work, but it certainly sounds like there's a current forming, uh, a movement forming. Um, and I'm wondering if you can you can kind of talk listeners through um, what is the Edinburgh Sudanese Community Partnership with Edin- University of Edinburgh all about? When did it begin, and who who's been involved in it, and why why has it sprung up? Nice, that's a great question. I'm going to jump in there to start with. So very much that project. So I've been part of uh, one of the kind of leaders of that in the last uh, coming up to four years now. 
uh, three years, four years. It came about in 2018 um, because some of us have, like Ahmed and myself, been students at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and so you might cross paths with a few Sudanese people, but there wasn't much linkage or much of a presence at all. And um, outside of the university, just in the local community, there was so much activity and so much going on and so many people. And I think for me, I kind of was part of starting this Edinburgh Sudanese Community Partnership back in 2018, um, because I realized just being a student here, I had access to things that none of the rest of the Sudanese community had access to. Um, I had a library card where I could use the main library as alumni. And I, over about 10 years since graduating, I'd realized out of personal interest, there were so many resources in Edinburgh University about Sudan about Sudanese thought, about Sudanese culture, Sudanese economics, Sudanese politics. And they were on the dustiest shelves right at the back, right at the back of the library. Literally, I could blow in it and the dust would come off. And I was like, wow, this is shameful. <laughs> Why have I not used this more often? And then it made me think like, how come there's so few, so few users of this when there's so many Sudanese in Edinburgh? I wonder how many people know about this. So. In 2018, just started having conversations with a few people in the in the Jalia and the community organisation. I uh, invited the, 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 the then president and the treasurer and the secretary to come meet me at the cafe at Edinburgh Uni um, in the summer of 2018. And I just showed them some of the books I could get out oh, on my wow. library card. I got I was, You brought them to the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, come meet me at the cafe in the library. I'm just going to show you these books. Just tell me like what you think about this, because I've never really... Uh -huh. seen us use these resources so I brought like a literally as many as I could carry in my arms real amateur and I brought it to the cafe and I wow. showed it and the then president his mouth like dropped open wow. he, he just picked up one of the books and he said do you realize this book here uh, People and Power by Bono Marwal who is a very famous uh, Sudanese politician his origins are in South Sudan um, but very much a Sudanese nationalist yeah, Bono Marwal's book the, the president said this is like gold to us we can't get copies of this wow. in most places so just that reaction alone told uh -huh. me there was something that needed to happen there is it because the book is um forbidden in some places or what made it a, a kind of like unique resource? no it's not not at all it's not available no no it's not forbidden but it's just because a lot of resources in sudan get destroyed uh with different you know we're a country that has gone through so many military coups and each military coup tries to rewrite the discourse and the history. Um, so even some of the university resources get destroyed. I just know that in kind of circulation and print, sometimes these books will be hardly circulated um, and definitely not printed again. But even sometimes the books are destroyed by new regimes. Yeah. Ahmed, um, sorry, man. Go ahead. To cut in there, it's actually one of the sad facts about us is um, I believe Sudan is the country with the most military coups in history or in recent history at least a lot of them just go unnoticed sometimes i'll be in sudan and we'll hear about a failed attempt and yeah they'll just like lock off the bridges to the inner city for like a day there'll be more of a military presence for like a week and then it's over it's just become like a normal part of life there to the point that they just don't really react to it anymore it's kind of like they they're desensitized to it so the resources that have been brought to Edinburgh then are somewhat protected, you know, they're protected resources. Um, but I guess I'm curious to know how they got here as well. Yeah. Uh, what is the story of their arrival? 
And That's a good question. And that is exactly <laughs> yeah. the Sudanese Community Partnership Project. Um, it started from just that summer of 2018. A few of us in the community organization, about five of us, realized there's something we can do here because those of us who have the privilege of a link to Edinburgh University, like myself, you know, we have to use that privilege to, to try and share that wealth of knowledge and wealth of access. So we just started looking at the university, the kind of um, tutors, the academics who we might have come across in the past, and we just started contacting them. We kind of called a meeting and proposed a project to uh, Murray House School of Education and to the chaplaincy, anywhere where we had someone in the community had some link with somebody. So, for example, the, the chaplains for Islam, people knew that, knew that chaplain, Yahya Bari, um, a great brother. We, we knew Murray House, Professor Rowena Arshad, who had worked at a community organisation in Pilton with some of our Sudanese colleagues. Um, we, we also knew to contact the Centre for African Studies as one of the leading African research centres in Scotland, if not the UK, but also the Edinburgh Local, which was the university's community team um, within the Department of, Surf, Department for Social Responsibility and Sustainability, um, and also the library and collections, because that's where we you know, spotted the, the library resources. So we pulled people together, and Professor Rowena Arshad in particular was a real ally and helped us do that. She actually attended that first meeting where I brought all the books. She joined us about 45 minutes later and kind of heard us sharing stories about how special that collection was. So about five of us from the student community met with about five or six representatives from the university, along with one research student who was part of the Discover Ed project, which is about uncovering black and Asian students over history who have been at Edinburgh University. So we all came in a room and we ran a workshop and ran that workshop October 2018 mm. uh, and it was uh, a project that was to propose a long-term community partnership between the Sudanese and the Edinburgh University to basically build bridges to share resources, to share knowledge, mm -hmm. to share power ultimately um, and to be guided by a guidance document by the Runnymede Trust um, called Finding Common Cause and that was a real bedrock so we workshopped that guidance and said, you know, if we're to build something that's long-term, that's reciprocal, that's beneficial, but also works from an anti-racist point of view, you know, yeah. what are the power dynamics in, in partnering up together? How can we look at, for example, like you said, Shira, how did these books end up in Edinburgh University? Which of these people studied here? We don't know. Um, but also what other resources beyond books are held within the university? So we just started that project and committed to it. So myself, you, Ahmed, and many others in the community, we've just had a kind of a rotating working group with different membership in different years. And we've spent the last three years, we've been building this proposal for a community partnership project, which looks at the key aims is a bridge between the University of Edinburgh and the local Sudanese diaspora, and to commit to building the community organization, uh, to make sure we strengthen the community organization, the Jalia, uh, and also to build shared learning resources that can be used not only now, but in the future generations uh, by building things like digital platforms, by building workshops that can empower our community uh, and that can also engage students, researchers, academics interested in Sudan and the Sudanese diaspora um, for both Sudan, Sudan State and South Sudan. And we're really privileged in kind of year two of that project um, we received a community grant from the university, and that's how Ahmed. Do you want to say a little bit about the 
youth advisor role that came out of that? Yeah, um, my role, and um, although she couldn't be here uh, as as well, we kind of like formed our own kind of, I guess, subdivision of the the project, the community, um, and uh, we were kind of like more focused on uh, projects that reached out to the Sudanese youth in the community um, specifically, and uh, we like kind of planned several workshops and uh, using my background in music and Zaki's in um, poetry we ran kind of like lyrical workshops that um, kind of got people to speak about things in a kind of um, environment where they, they, they felt like we made sure it felt like a safe space and also a big part of our community is um, a lot of the time <laughs> the whole respect and elders things kind of gets in the way so like people sometimes don't speak freely around like grown-ups so it was mostly run by myself and Ezra and Zeki just kind of played like a supervisory role to make sure everything ran smoothly but um it was it was quite successful it was like every fortnight we'd have um just kind of like a topic discussion and people could provide um lyrical or even art pieces um relating to the topic and we just talk about it and usually it'd be stuff maybe wouldn't be as easy to speak about normally in the community like one of them was about kind of just like being a woman in sudan and um how like that is and and like both the positives and negatives of it because i mean something that a lot of the time it's hard to speak up about back home and here um influences by the culture which um was pretty fruitful we, we got a lot of discussion out of it and i feel like the youth especially because um, most of them like myself will have grew up most of their life here but because of like kind of staying in touch with the culture most of these kids that i knew um regularly visited sudan it kind of like gave them the perspective of both sides so i felt like their input was really important whereas like a lot of um the elders in the community even though they've lived here a long time um most of them will have grew up most of like their life in sudan so i feel like that forms a lot of who they are mm -hmm. um so yeah it was it was pretty good discussion got some uh good pieces out of it some of the art pieces and stuff we posted on the sudanese community um instagram and uh even for myself as a musician that actually helped me a lot like some of the pieces that i wrote for there i uh, ended up kind of extending into like full-blown songs or poems and you're being very humble because they blossomed into beautiful songs even sometimes whole eps so you, wow. you, you create incredible stuff but I'd, I'd add that was one really big part of our sudanese community partnership project in the early years with that funding was to have um shabab so shabab is youth in arabic to have activities for the shabab in their own rights to have youth leadership in their own rights mm -hmm. um but part of that the underlying part of the project is to uh, try and find allies within the university who will help us on this journey rediscover ourselves and our role within Edinburgh, within mm -hmm. Scotland, but also Scotland's role within Sudan, both mm -hmm. South Sudan and Sudan State. Um, and part of that is because Sudanese, we are Black Arab Africans, we're a mix of religions, a massive part Muslim, massive part Christian. Sudanese also have some almost 500 different languages within both Sudans. So huge range of languages, also tribes, um, but also we have indigenous religions um, that sometimes get a bit disrespected, which have much older African indigenous religions. So we're so diverse, but we're really, I think Azza said it beautifully in a recent event, uh, props to Azza uh, and Daf Allah, who's one of our young advisors on the project alongside Ahmed. Azza said at an event last November, you know, we, we intersect uh, a lot of different identities 
So yes, we're part of the Arab world, but also part of, part of the African world. Uh, we're part of the Islamic world, but also part of the African traditional religions world. Uh, Sufism, the spiritual version of Islam in Sudan. It doesn't matter what religion you are, people turn up to celebrate during the Prophet's birthday. People will turn up to see huge celebrations of Sufi rituals, singing, dancing, recitation, which all the Muslims and Christians will come to take part in. So we, we merge a lot of the world where we're from. And that's kind of like a lot of the Horn of Africa. There's so much mix. Um, so sometimes with that intersection between so many different identities. Even where Sudan is geographically, it's, it's kind of leaning North and East African, which plays a part in how we look, how are, we are culturally. And uh, before, obviously before South Sudan split from us, we kind of even ease into like more Central African and I think that plays a part in what defines us culturally. Thank you for sharing the complexity and the textures of, of Sudanese culture. Baki and Ahmed, you painted such a nice a picture of the constellation of, of, um, of geographic forces, but also kind of artistic and political in one in one space. Ahmed, you set up so nicely for us the, you know, the potency of art in the youth life of Sudanese people here. And I know you're an artist uh, as well. And I'm wondering, could, could you share with us? Could you share with us something that you've produced? My stage name is Melody, just playing off my name and Melody. So. <laughs> and um, yeah, I felt quite strongly about um, the Sudanese revolution in its early stages. And I wrote this piece on the anniversary of the, well, it's called Fadalit Assam. It was the massacre that happened the night before Eid. I feel like a lot of Sudanese artists, especially in diaspora, took part in this as well. We never really agreed to anything like beforehand. It was just on that day, I seen a lot of people releasing things as well. I'd wrote it a few days before, but it was kind of nice seeing how everyone felt the same as I did, I guess. Uh, the name of the song, I'll, I'll be performing a cappella, but the name of the song is Dhamma Shaheed, which translates to Martyr's Blood. Enjoy. <laughs> Coming from Sudan, I was born as a leader, fighting for the bread we ain't stacking, trying to eat, cause I'm writing with the sun, there's no shelter from the heat. It's Ramadan forever, only waiting on Eid. And every single day, it's a cycle that repeats. Wake up in the morning, all my niggas pray for peace. Gotta grab the peace just to go and brush your teeth. Try to pass the time, seeing niggas on the street. Go to sit the shy, waste your day sipping tea. Maybe take a pill, tramadol's what you need. Some niggas hope they never wake when they go sleep. Tried to make change, but they shot us in the street. And every new day, bet there was a new Shaheed. Hitting them with gas before sending them a bleed. See, it's only two options when you're struggling to breathe. Hustling for peas, are you studying and leave? See, it was looking pristine till I hit 16. Realized Sudan wasn't all as it seems. My niggas sit lean, but they used to drink steam. Sick of being part of a government scheme. Marching on road, wanna end the regime. Brought us all together, we was part of one team. It was looking like a dream till we heard the first scream. Saw the ginger weed, killing niggas on stream. Man, it's been a whole year, we still hurting from the pain. Wearing blue from motor, we're still caught up in the rain. Now I feel the blood and I hope it ain't in vain because I'm trying to catch a plane, see my family again because I'm born in Sudan, but I wasn't raised in it. Wish that weren't the case. 
So I'm always praising it. I'm hoping one day I can settle down and stay in it. And if that never happens, then I hope they put my grave in it. Wow. It's beautiful, Ahmed. So powerful. The last last few lines of nostalgia as well and the yearning. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, you know, actually, if you could tell listeners a little bit more about the context of the Sudanese revolution as well. and So for 30 years prior to the start of the Sudanese revolution, we had the same leader. Well, I guess a dictator, Ahmed uh, al-Bashir and uh, his Islamist kind of party. While they did have elections during their time, many believed that they were rigged. Yes, so yeah, it, was, it wasn't really a democratic rule. And um, at that point, like people had not really been happy with them for a long time, but I feel like it's kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess. Um, the breaking point really was when basic necessities, which um, was like price of like bread and fuel and stuff like that, just increased to a ridiculous amount. Like people don't make very much over there and people just had had enough, I guess. And they just went out to protest peacefully. That carried on for a very long time and it gained a lot of momentum. It actually started, I believe, sometime in late 2018 and then um it really started to gain momentum around um like march or april 2019 and um then they had um the first millions march which was um it's, it's become a lot more common now but at the time it was something they'd never really seen before they organized on such a huge scale for so many people to march and hope to reach uh, millions of people throughout sudan but um, mostly in Khartoum State, which is um, the capital. And uh, yeah, they, they just organized so beautifully at the time, something that had never been seen or done before, especially like in like neighboring countries where a lot of these protests end up turning into civil war. But we made it like a point of our revolution not to resort to violence, I guess. And like basically, no matter what happened, we wanted to keep it peaceful. And while many people were hurt initially, everything kind of went by pretty well initially, um, and uh, they set up the Riyadh, which was kind of like a hub for the revolution in the center of Khartoum, actually, where many protesters gathered and kind of like had a sit-in there for literally months. I, I can't remember the exact time it was around for. And that's why the, the event that I'm speaking about, um, the massacre that happened in the, in the sit-in protest area, uh, especially because of the time of it, like people stayed there during Ramadan when people are fasting and, um, you know, it's not an easy time and they stayed out there and Eid was meant to be a time to kind of just like relax for a day and the night before the Eid celebrations, um, uh, a huge military like presence kind of marched in the middle of the night, I believe it was like 3, 4 a.m. And they just started firing um, live ammunition and that kind of marked like a, a turning point for the for the um, revolution and people were worried from that point that it would turn violent but um, thankfully it didn't. While many people kind of felt a lot of anger, myself included, uh, about what happened there, they persisted in doing things peacefully and uh, there was um, a communication and like internet phone network blackout uh, after that massacre and during it actually to kind of limit spread of the information but 
after that was lifted, all these videos of everything that happened kind of came out. And it actually ended up playing such a huge role in overthrowing um, the, the government um, because they were internationally condemned for what happened there. Yeah, that, that was kind of like a turning point where a lot of sacrifices were made, I guess, but it kind of ended up being part of the reason, I guess, that um, we were able to overthrow the leader at the time. I think first time in my lifetime, I've been 41 years on this planet so far, and uh, this is the first time in Sudan that we saw um, massive uprisings, not only in the capital, Khartoum, but all over the country, from the furthest reaches, uh, on the edge of Chad, asylum seekers and refugees, uh, people in uh, Port Sudan, people in so many different regions, really rural areas, as well as more urban centers. Um, and we also saw for the first time, massive role of women uh, across Sudan and all classes of the society came out on these nonviolent protests in so many areas. You had miners, you had tea sellers, tea, you know, who's generally very poor women supporting very destitute families. You had people in all strata of the society protesting against the regime and, and saying this is far bigger than the awful state of prices of basics like bread and, and petrol. It was also about the fact that we need healthcare. We need uh, public healthcare. There was an NHS, kind of like an NHS for Sudan call because Sudan is a British colony, uh, British and Egyptian colony. And we had experienced NHS kind of like a, a welfare uh, health service at some point in our history, very, very briefly. So people had a flavor of what it'd be like to have a national health service. And during the uprisings and the revolution, you know, medical staff, doctors, nurses, uh, health professionals were really at the forefront of a lot of what's going on, a lot of organising. This was really a mass, whole society thing, and that rippled right through the diaspora. So right here in Edinburgh, wow. people were continuously protesting every Tuesday outside Holyrood in Edinburgh, but it was musical, it was artistic, it was non-violent, and we had a kind of renaissance of Sudanese art and self-expression um, over this period, where there was incredible street artwork um, in Sudan and also in Edinburgh. There was music, there was song, there was tapestry, as um, just so much. It was like a real, almost like a reawakening of the Sudanese identity and a pride in being Sudanese, despite the things we are so ashamed of, like how many military coups our generations have suffered. I think even in the international community, um, for a lot of people, that was kind of like their first time even really hearing about us, despite us playing such a huge role. When we say Sudanese people are everywhere, like we really mean it. In fact, um, there was actually a saying that, well, it, it translates quite poorly from Arabic, but it, it basically um, says like, you can literally look under like a, I think it was like an anthill and you'd find Sudanese people there. It's it's kind of a negative, <laughs> but yeah, it's like we're everywhere. And it's it was kind of sad seeing how like invisible we'd kind of been um, to a lot of people, especially like in the UK. And I'd say the impact of that as well, that this happened at a time when we were already setting up this relationship with Edinburgh University. Uh -huh. And what I felt and witnessed and what others felt was a certain kind of bold, a boldness and uh, pushing pushing aside a sense of humility that actually is quite a Sudanese characteristic of being humble, being quiet, don't make a fuss, like be polite, be the best guest you can, be the best host you can. Actually, in the last two years, I'm so grateful, three years, so grateful to all the sacrifices of those in Sudan because in the diaspora, 
the boldness in the in the diaspora just skyrocketed. So in Edinburgh, how we experienced that was we're no longer waiting for handouts or crumbs off the table. You know, this project, Edinburgh Sudanese Community Partnership, we're knocking on doors. We're saying if you don't answer our emails, you don't answer our calls, we'll come knocking on your office. You have to engage with us. We're not going to be invisible anymore. You have to talk with us about you want to talk about race equality. You want to talk about Black Lives Matter. You talk about race, anti-racism. Show us in evidence that you're making commitments to a settled Black diaspora here in Edinburgh. So that really boosted, at the same time of being really traumatic and upsetting and devastating, there was also a real sense of that pride of Sudanese uprising and revolution that had just had ripple effects for the diaspora because we were able to come and say, you know, actually, how is there still at Edinburgh University no Black Studies programme, no Black Scottish Studies programme? How, how is there no research being done on Sudan or Sudanese diaspora from 2020 right up until 2022, zero research. How is there nothing focusing on one of the biggest countries uh, pre-2011, biggest country in Africa? Um, yeah. So that's really where it kind of gave us a boldness to go, do you know what? We're going to really talk about anti-racism and decolonizing. Let's get let's get real and, and deal with the community. And, that, and we're just one African diaspora here in Edinburgh, but we're part of something called a Pan-African Network. So we're linked in with a lot of other community associations of Malawians, uh, of South Africans, of Senegalese, uh, of U- Ugandans, Kenyans, a real kind of almost like a resurgence of a, of a, of a Pan-African, at least a Pan-African collectivism. So we're trying to use this project to, with the Edinburgh University to create a blueprint for other African diaspora communities in Edinburgh to get access to resources in the same way we're pushing for, for access. So I'm always grateful to all the martyrs and the, and the strugglers in Sudan who just really boosted our sense of self, our sense of self-worth, but also our sense of our human rights. I love um, the storytelling that Zaki and Ahmed, that you, you share around uh, this revolutionary moment, the way that um, what's happening on the ground um, inspires and kind of recontours the political and intellectual interventions happening in Edinburgh. Like, I think that's... The, so you're helping listeners think about also what's moving and shifting within the Sudanese community in Edinburgh. And uh, Zaki, I wanted to pick up on this because, uh, or pick up from an earlier point in the way that you were also narrating the kind of relationship that's being formed with the university um, and the various constituents that are involved. And, you know, I, I I really appreciate the you know the the way you describe the kind of enthusiasm that members of the community experienced as they saw the kind of resources that were here present at the university. But I know yeah. that some of what was also found here was not um, was was definitely the the you know it was um, the opposite of exciting. It was maybe maybe we would describe it using the language of horror. Um, quite um, visceral and I'm referring here to the um, to what was found in the anatomical museum here at the University of Edinburgh and just to give listeners a little bit of context um, there exists to present day what is called um, a skull collection Um, and what we're talking about here is hundreds of skulls 
um, that were brought to Scotland, as well as um, the UK more broadly. Um, the skulls that were brought to the University of Edinburgh helped to, were, were, were used as artifacts as part of the Edinburgh um, Phrenological Society which was um, kind of at the, at the forefront of, you know, the, the intersection of um, medicine and racial science really kind of forming here in, in Scotland. And this is yes. the 19th century, and this is in the 19th century, right? So this is actually when we also see the hardening of racial ideas based on, on pseudoscience. And as I say pseudoscience, I also want to put it in, in quotation marks, and I'm thinking about a brilliant talk that was delivered yesterday by Dr. Rochelle Rowe, one of our colleagues here in history. And um, the discussant in her talk said, you know, when we talk about pseudoscience, it almost lets science off the hook. And if we think about the kind of um, phrenology that was um, practiced here as a, as a kind of science, um, and it's it's legacy of racial violence, but it's ongoing haunting force of racial violence. You know, that is that has everything to do with um, the discipline of science as well. So I guess just to circle back, can you talk us through a little bit more about what what's um, what did it mean to discover that um, part of the skull collection, over 1800 skulls here, that some of them had come from Sudan? That were brought. I think the languaging of it on on the website also even frames it as they were donated, as though they belonged to um, you know colonizers that that shared them with the University Absolutely. of Edinburgh. And and just to put it Absolutely. in context, we're talking about um, skulls that were taken without any consent from prisons, asylums, hospitals, archaeological sites and battlefields, doctors, military personnel, archaeologists, um, and ex quote unquote, uh, explorers, <laughs> as detailed on, on the university website. So um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about what, what was that process like for you? Yeah, of encountering that. I'll tell you very, very honestly. So we have this project ongoing. We were making this proposal to the university. We were gradually over the last three years been raising this proposal for the Edinburgh Sudanese Community Partnership to establish five years of properly resourced partnership work, which offers a mutual benefit and real reciprocity at its base between the university's communities and the Sudanese community. And through that, to try and reach out to many other settled African diasporas in Edinburgh. So it becomes some move towards equity not just interesting learning or new research, but actually building some concrete equity. So we're building that for about three years from, from 2018, 2019 till summer 2021. And we've been raising that through the various decision-making bodies in the university uh, and finally got to the stage last summer where we had our final planning meeting with lots of different representatives. And they said, okay, now it's time to take that proposal to the vice principal um, sorry, the Vice Chancellor and Principal's Office to see if the university will commit to a five-year resourcing of this project to create a Pan-African Centre, which would be a community hub for many African diasporas, to um, create uh, work, employment and career development streams for black youth in the settled African diaspora here in Edinburgh, um, but also to look at um, resourcing project coordinator post in some way um, 
whether that's joint funding, whatever. So we're in this project and we're doing this, we're proposing this as we're working out how to escalate this to the, the, the highest decision-making body in the university. By chance, <laughs> by chance, purely by chance, uh, someone in the university posts on Twitter uh, an advert for an upcoming anatomical museum online exhibition about the Skulls Collection. By chance, there was no communication with Sudanese community whatsoever. There wasn't even a reflection that there might be those relationships with the compatriots of these skulls. I read it. I looked at the website. I read that Edinburgh had been a centre of scientific racism during this period. And I was shocked. I had no idea that Edinburgh's medical history. How did I not think this? But it, the reality was this exhibition was a, a very frank an open exhibition. I have to respect those in the university who put this exhibition together because they were saying, here, look at what we have. Look at what we not only have inherited, but we're now gatekeepers of. Um, and they had very honest, I felt very honest publicity about it, um, which was really key. But when I saw in the mix, when I looked further into this exhibition, the fact there were Omdurman battle skulls, I was shocked to my core because my family on my dad's side, all my cousins are in Omdurman, which is the old capital of Sudan. I know the history. We know the history of the British uh, Egyptian condominium, which was the colonial rule of Sudan. We also know in the late 1800s of the reconquest of Sudan, which was mixed Ottoman and British empire, military takeover of Sudan, which was repressing the very early nationalist movement, uh, the Mahdi, the Mahdi's forces in Sudan were very early nationalist independence movement based through Islam. Um, the, the Mahdi was, the key battle was in Omdurman. And what we know is in history that uh, Britain built this, almost the very first big media war um, of the modern era. Britain used the language of General Gordon, who had been beheaded in Khartoum two years earlier. They used the language of revenge as part of this reconquest of Sudan. There was a very clear cultural and political uh, white supremacist move in this reconquest of Sudan to uh, get back at the Sudanese. And even Churchill is, is quoted at times as talking about how vengeful this war was. This was 1898. Um, as soon as I saw this advert, this uh, exhibition with skulls, I knew what those skulls were because mm -hmm. British troops involving lots of Scottish, so Scottish Cameron Highlanders and the Seaforth Highlanders were part of these battalions within the reconquest of Sudan. People took heads of Sudanese fallen soldiers and civilians as trophies, as a revenge trophy for General Gordon's beheading two years earlier. So I knew this history. What I didn't know is that two of the heads were kept in Edinburgh University in the anatomical museum. So it was a real sense of shock, but also an affirmation of the desperate need to approach projects like ours, the Sudanese Community Partnership, as a sense of whether you talk about repatriation or reparations, there is repairing to be done that's very contemporary. Uh, and to realize that our compatriots' heads are still kept within the museum collection. Uh, when we're seeing Sudan in such dire straits right now, we thought we have to start our conversation. Next week, we're hoping that we have a visit. Um, the Anatomical Museum have been very open with us and inviting us to visit and have quite a large representation from our community to come and see these skulls, which are in a private museum. There's not public access normally. So we're giving special permission uh, to access this. And we're grateful to the team who responded so positively. But we're now starting as part of this visit, hopefully next week, is to talk about how to repair 
the damage that has been done? And how do we recognize Scotland's role within the colonization and disruption of Sudanese independence from you know, close to, uh, you know, towards 200 years ago? So that's what the beginning of a new conversation mm-hmm. about actual reparations and what that would look like, uh, whether that's repatriation of the skulls, whether we think in a much more creative way, think how do people in Sudan receive some benefit from the injustices being the, the wrongs being righted? How do we make sure that's felt by Sudanese in a real way right now? That thank you for putting it in context as well in in the colonial history of the context and for us to think about what do those skulls come to represent as they continue to hold a place within the university's own archive? What does that tell us about, um, well, well, what does that tell us about the relations of power that also assemble the archive here? Um, an archive that you cannot enter without also becoming complicit in colonial power um, in. And, you know, this question of, um, repatriation or reparation and I imagine they they might mean it might mean different things what and I guess this is this is a question that the um the Sudanese community would probably you know take time to think about and reflect on after the visit and after you find out more about the the um the more about the context behind who brought the skulls here and how did they arrive why are they still here and what are they doing? Um, I guess at that point you would have a community consultation around um, what does it mean to restore the dignity of Sudanese community? You know, I think it's important our listeners not only hear the presence of those skulls as, as historical artifacts, but actually there's a violence to their continuity, right? There's a violence to their presence here at the university and it's a, it's haunting, it's a haunting violence, um, you know, in more ways than one, right? Absolutely. Um, so it's amazing, uh, Zaki, that you, I mean, <laughs> the absurdity too, that you, you, you're in a relationship, um, so many constituents at the university and have to find out about this uh, via social media rather than being contacted directly. Um, you know, I think it speaks to the reasons that so many groups at the university are doing this work of quote-unquote uncovering, right? Like uncover ed, um, you know, or the work of other, of, of other um, societies here. This process of um, naming colonial power isn't just like served up on a platter but it's it's hard labor and it's emotional labor it's it's and i think for the communities that are impacted by the violence themselves it's it's it takes a particular toll so i i want to just thank you and ahmed and others who have been involved in um drawing out these connections for us this is these are such contemporary conversations that we we do need to be having and we wouldn't be having if it wasn't for um, communities, you know, community, the injured communities uh, speaking up. Thank you. And I just say, I, I really appreciate that. But also it's the fact that we have so many allies within the university who might be at very low levels in the employment or they might be quite senior. But having spent time to find our allies, um, I've had a really interesting conversation, for example, with Rachel Hosker 
who's one of the lead archivists um, yeah. and to be able yeah. to find our allies and to take that strategic approach yeah. of finding allies like yourself and race ahead that makes it much more fruitful because yeah. that interest and that energy from within could yeah. mix with the interest from without and that to combine those two hopefully it'll be a bit of an unstoppable force hopefully absolutely um, absolutely i you're right to point that out thank you for for mentioning that because i yeah i don't think we can assemble the full story if if there weren't um you know rebels scattered across the university willing to take the dusty book off of the shelf and open up op, or open up the skull room and and reveal what's there so I think it's a it's an interesting political moment that we find ourselves in, um, and 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 a, a kind of moment of conscious consciousness, radical consciousness as well, that's contending with um, the horizon of possibility that's being opened up at the university. So the constellation of all of that is making for very interesting a very interesting political moment. Um, well, you know, on that note, I appreciate how much time um, we've taken from from you, Zaki and Ahmed. Thank you for bringing more conversation to this discussion. We look forward to listening to part two of this conversation as well um, after your visit to the archive. Yeah, I wish you strength and, and solidarity in that visit. Thank you. just going to finish on I'm going to read you this lyric just uh, this poem because it kind of summarizes a bit of where we're going thank you for this opportunity for us and for our community the poem is called the x in the saltire the unsaid the unnamed the unknown inverse of a black scottish backbone raising my seeds in the winds of old reiki sowing a seed in the belly of the beast we anglicized arabized african hebrew gravitate overseas and land like st andrew we're here because they were there. Evidence locked in their Berber hair, their robes, their pipes, their nationalism. Colonized people's right to resist are given, but check yourself, check your wealth and your position. Sudan's Indiref was back in 2011. Sudanese still in these schemes and stairs of this city. Shagia of Sight Hill, Nuba of Nidri, Dongalawi of Leith, Mahatsia of Muir House, Hawara outside Holyrood, that's your house. But where's the interest, the curiosity, the comparisons? They call us new Scots, but only consult at elections? The undetermined, the unwinding, the unknown. Inverse of a black British backbone. Keep a close eye on these Scottish wise Jamaicans. Deconstructing devolution, remixing reparations. Unlocked architects of a new vision. This time it's Africans on a civilizing mission. You can were kin, but kind of like Cain and Abel. One celebrates with Kitchener, how the others left disabled. Dervishes decapitated, academics captivated. From 1889 to now, the uni's still got niggers' domes in cages. And you tell us it's old history. But on my street, I see the Mahdi in the stones of our tenement that are cut on these four elements. Reconquest, independence, asylum hotel, military intelligence. Artillery of ignorance, reserved matters, no remembrance. For parking scenes of Badreddin getting shot up by the police. Trauma-informed enforcers of private Scottish profit. 
This Celtic nation's got a complex in its complexion, a thread of its own class woven into the tartan. Fraying at the seams, the details cut for decoration, fail to task the basic ask, what will you learn from decolonization? The infinite, the unending, the unknown power of his African backbone, the X in the saltire.